Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you brought us here on the Sabbath day. We're grateful that we can take a break from the world, that we can study your word, that we can sing praises. We pray that the words I speak today will have truth to them and that your, your people will find ways to apply these words to their lives. We always pray for your guidance, Father, in everything that we do, everywhere we go, in our interactions with others. We pray for your guidance. And we are also grateful for your son, Yahshua, who you sent to, to die for us. And we come to you in his name as we say hallelujah and amen. All right. Good afternoon. Happy Sabbath. This, title, this, this message is entitled, Get Out of the Echo Chamber. And I'd like to start my message by reviewing an experiment with numbers. This was an experiment that was done by a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, a psychologist in the 60s. Don't worry, there's not a lot of math involved here, and I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. I first read about this experiment in a book that I read last year titled Think Like a Rocket Scientist by Ozan Verrill. In this book, among... Many other things, Ozon explains why it's important not to live in an echo chamber and to challenge your beliefs by conversing with others who don't agree with you and to understand their point of view. And I'll explain what an echo chamber is in a few minutes, but first let's start with the number experiment. Let's suppose that I show you three numbers, two, four, six. The numbers follow a simple rule that I've thought up of ahead of time, and your job is to discover what rule that I used for these numbers. You can give me three more numbers, and I'll tell you whether they meet the rule or they don't. You can have as many tries as you want. There's no time limit. And if we had time, maybe we could go back and forth on this. But um, I'm just going to introduce a person who might look at this and say, hey, wait a minute. This is very clear to me what pattern he, he's figured out. So he'd say, um, I'm going to give you 468. Does that meet the rule? And I say, why, yes, it does. Okay, now he's on a roll. 6, 8, 10, does that meet the rule? I would say, yes, it does. And he just keeps going on and on, giving me like 100, 102, 104. It's like, yeah, that meets the rule. Um, and then he'd say, oh, I know what the rule is. You're counting by twos. And I'd have to say, nope, that's not the rule. Another person might come along and say, okay, so it's not counting by twos. What if you're taking the first number and you're just doing multiples. So they'd give me 369. I'd say, yeah, that actually does meet the rule. Like, okay, I've got it now. And then he'd give me 4, 8, 12. And I'd say, yes, that meets the rule. And then he goes on over and over again. And he's like, okay, I know what the rule is. It's multiples of the first number. And I'd say, no, sorry, that doesn't meet the rule. Both of them are wrong. The rule was even more simple than that. It was simply um, numbers in increasing order. So... You take the first number, and the second number is greater than the one before, and the third number is greater than that. So any three numbers where one is greater than the other, that's, that's the rule. And some of you may have been able to figure this out if you're able to try this. Um, again, I said the study was developed by a psychologist in the 1960s, and he was surprised by how few people could figure this out on the first try. It was only about one in five could figure this out. And it demonstrates what this same psychologist coined confirmation bias. Maybe you've heard about confirmation bias, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, what's a, So what's a better method of figuring this out, like actually figuring out what, I, what rule I had in my head? So the author of this book, he explains 
that the unsuccessful participants believed that they found the rule early on and proposed strings of numbers that confirmed their belief. If they thought the rule was increasing intervals of two, they just would generate these strings. They'd keep popping them out, 8, 10, 12, 20, 22, 24. As the experimenter validated each new string, the participants grew increasingly more confident in their initial brilliant hunch, and they assumed they were on the right track. Uh, they were too busy trying to find numbers that conformed to what they thought was the right rule than, rather than discovering the rule itself. Now, the successful participants, on the other hand, took the exact opposite. Instead of trying to prove themselves right by generating strings that confirm their hypothesis, they tried to falsify it. For example, if they thought the rule was increasing intervals of two, they would say, what about three, two, one? You know, they'd try something else that didn't match with what their preconceived notion was. That string does not follow the rule. They might then say 2, 4, 10, and that string does follow the rule, but doesn't follow what most participants assumed was the right rule. And so the author goes on to say, this numbers game, as you may have guessed, is a microcosm for life. Our instinct and in our personal and professional lives is to prove ourselves right. Every yes makes us feel good. Every yes makes us stick it's what we think we know. Every yes gets us a gold star and a hit of dopamine, that feel-good hormone that your brain releases. Ozon goes on to explain how successful scientists challenge their beliefs and try to find ways to disprove them, but in an attempt to prove them. He points out that they usually learn more from this approach than from just looking for evidence that they are right. Instead, they look for evidence that they are wrong, and by doing that, they can be more confident that they have it right. And of course, Ozon, you know, the title of the book, and let me move on, uh, the title of the book was uh, How to Think Like a Rocket Scientist, but he, so he relates this method to building rockets and how um, since scientists don't just assume something is going to work because it worked the first time they tested it, right? You have to test and you have to retest and you have to find ways to overstress the system. Um, sometimes you have to test until you get a failure, and then you know how much stress the system can take. So what is an echo chamber, and why should you be careful about being in one? An echo chamber is an environment where all the information and the opinions that you hear are reflections of what you already believe, or at least they reinforce what you believe. This can be a problem because of confirmation bias, that thing that we just demonstrated. Because of our tendency to prefer any information that confirms something we already believe. On the flip side, it also means that we tend to ignore information that contradicts what we believe. And one of the effects of confirmation bias is that we tend to hold on to beliefs um, even after they've been shown as false. In some cases, it can even lead to prejudice against people that you see as having a different belief than you. And from my point of view, the risk of confirmation bias has um, gone up drastically due to how absorbed we are, not this congregation, but as a society, how absorbed we are in social media. For example, if you have a belief that's really out there, not even close to being a popular belief or a rational belief, you can easily find others who believe the same way. You can even join in a cause you believe in um, and later find out that it affected your whole life and outlook. For example, now bear with me because this is a crazy example. For example, I may say that cilantro is the best herb in the whole world and that it makes every dish better. 
and I can find others who agree with me. In fact, a five-second Google search returned a subreddit. Again, Reddit is a social media site, but a subreddit named Cilantro Master Race, and you, you, where you can, quote, discuss how people who have genetics to hate cilantro are inferior people, and the ones who love cilantro are the elite race. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but you can tell that was written tongue-in-cheek, right? And the people in the community are probably not racist. Um, the top post, if you sort and you look at the top post, is just someone saying, I love cilantro. And everyone in the comments saying, me too. One guy said, cilantro and parsley, brother. <laughs> but what would happen if day after day, I jumped on Reddit to chat with others about how great cilantro was? We post pictures of chili with cilantro, of salads with cilantro, of curries with cilantro. We start talking about all those non-cilantro people with disdain. And someone says, yeah, I just wanted to enjoy my cilantro today, and my wife got into an argument with me because I tried to put cilantro in her omelet. Then someone posts an article about a scientific study, and it shows that some people have genes that allow them to taste that soap-flavored chemical in cilantro, and I, there are actually studies that show this. There's a, there's a gene that makes cilantro taste bad to some people. Well, that's why we have this model about how we are the elite race. And then a few days pass, and someone new comes into the community and says, hey, listen, guys, cilantro isn't as versatile as you think. And everyone's like, downvote this guy and kick him out of here. He's a heretic. A few more days pass, and my wife starts to get concerned. Again, this is all hypothetical. All right? And my wife's downstairs helping out with, with the slides or something, so she's not up here to defend herself. But my wife starts to get, get concerned, and I start looking at her in a different way. She says, you've been spending a lot of time posting about cilantro. I'm also concerned about how you dug all the herbs up in the garden, replaced them with cilantro. And I said, oh, you must be one of those people with weird genes that mess up your taste buds. And then we would have to have a serious discussion. And she would point out that maybe I should sign out of Reddit because I've been in the cilantro echo chamber too long. I became biased because I only considered the opinion of people who enjoy cilantro, like me. And I do, actually. It's not my top herb. It's probably number three. Uh, Thai basil's number one, dill's number two, and cilantro's number three, for, you know, for your information. And, and so these ideas and opinions I heard all supported my belief that cilantro is the best herb, but I failed to keep a healthy perspective on the matter. And this is a silly example, but you could take my love of cilantro and replace it with something much more important. Um, I don't really want to get into the political spectrum, so I'll just relate it to our faith. Like my belief that Sabbath should be observed on the seventh day of the week, or my belief that using Yahweh's name is important. And I'm sure there was a time in each of our lives when uh, you were in an echo chamber. I know I was. Um, I'm sure I had a belief, and every time I heard someone repeat it to me or give me evidence in favor of it, I would just nod my head and agree. Like, yeah, that sounds right. Then later, I'd find some new evidence, and then I'd be like, I can't believe how long I believe this. It's been like my whole life, and now I have to kind of shift my thinking. Maybe once upon a time, you were sitting in church on Sunday, and a pastor was telling you that Sabbath had been changed to Sunday, and here are the reasons why it's okay that that happened. Um, maybe you were unwilling to consider another view because people with who you thought had more experience 
were just echoing your beliefs back to you. And then there was a point when you decided to step out of your comfort zone and study the seventh-day Sabbath. That at any point, you may need to, as you have in the past, you may need to acknowledge that you may be wrong and someone else could be right. So today I'd like to talk about the dangers of staying in an echo chamber too long, um, especially as it relates to our faith. But as we're going through here, I realized it can actually relate to our personal life too. Um, but this danger extends, like I said, to any beliefs we have, beliefs about the world around us and how people should treat each other, beliefs about certain political parties, uh, certain corporations and how they behave. Um, these beliefs could be about the media we ingest, which political party is best, um, even <laughs> belief about which one of the celebrities in that trial is really guilty. But another way to say get out of the echo chamber is to make an attempt to understand people who do not believe the same as you. Because doing this may prompt a study into something that you would not have considered before. It could help you relate to others as you witness, especially if you encounter someone later who has these beliefs that you've already looked into. Um, and there are a few examples I could think of from the Bible where people needed to get out of their echo chamber. I could point out how Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he had wise men and sorcerers confirming the belief that he didn't need to recognize Yahweh's power. Or about how the king Jeroboam, um, he did all these evil things in Israel, and he would not listen to the prophet Amos. Instead, he had one of his idolatrous priests kind of chase him off, like, we don't want to hear this here. But there is a really good example of this in 1 Kings. So in 1 Kings, we're going to go to chapter 22. This happened at a time, it was after King David, after King Solomon. Israel had been split into two kingdoms. We had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And leading up to this, and I think this is all in 1 Kings 22. Leading up to this, there was another kingdom, uh, kingdom of Syria, who had conquered one of Israel's cities. And Ahab was the king of Israel at the time. And he, he says to his, his counterpart down in the south, Jehoshaphat, he was the king of Judah, right? So Ahab goes to Jehoshaphat and says, um, will you help me take this city back? And Jehoshaphat says, sure, I'll help you take this city back. But let's first ask what Yahweh thinks about this. And what I've done here, oh, I've talked about confirmation bias already. What I've done here is I've summarized a few, a few key passages here in 1 Kings 22. And I'm going to read a few more, but I will be jumping around in 1 Kings 22. Um, but Jehoshaphat says, let's ask Yahweh what he thinks about this. And so what did Ahab do? Ahab, king of Israel, um, remember, he had already been established as one of the evil kings. In fact, I think all the kings in Israel were evil, but um, Ahab had done a lot of horrible stuff already up to this point. Um, and so you could kind of see his arrogance is coming into play here. Um, he didn't really trust in Yahweh, even though he made it sound like maybe he did. So what did Ahab do? He gathered about 400 prophets, okay? And um, they all say the same thing. So let's read about this. I'm going to start in verse 6. Then the king of Israel, this is Ahab, gathered prophets together, about 400 men, and said, Shall I go up to fight or shall I refrain? Again, this fight was to go um, reconquer one of the cities that um, a foreign nation had taken over, right? Um, and Jehoshaphat said, Oh, oh, first of all, and, and so they said, again, these are the prophets that Ahab gathered together, Go up, for Yahweh will deliver it into the hand of the king. So Ahab got the message that he was looking for. Of course, Ahab already knows that he wants to do this. So he's got these 400 prophets just telling him, yeah, go ahead. Yahweh will deliver this city back into your hand. Jehoshaphat said, 
Is there not still a prophet of Yahweh here that we might inquire of him? Maybe Jehoshaphat was kind of scratching his head. Here we've got 400 prophets coming in, um, and he, he might be looking back and thinking, hey, there's something going on here. Maybe we should get a second opinion about this. Look at all these guys over here just like telling the king what he wants to hear. So in verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, oh, yeah, there is one man, um, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire, but I hate him. Because he doesn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, "Um, let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, okay, bring this prophet in, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. I'm going to jump down to verse 13. And so this is when they went to get Micaiah and, and spoke to him. And they said this to Micaiah. Now listen, the words of the prophets, all these other 400 guys are in one accord to encourage the king. Please, let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement, because, of course, that's what King Ahab wants, right? So if we pause here, it almost seems like Ahab is not only in an echo chamber, but it's one that he set up himself. He basically wanted to hear that everything he was going to do was going to go great. And then if you disagreed, well, you were cast out. So let's read about that in verse 17. And then he said, I saw all Israel. This is what Micaiah actually said to him. He said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. So basically what he's saying is, no, all those other guys that you've been listening to, they are wrong. And they're just telling what you want to hear. This is what actually is going to happen. You're going to be scattered on the mountains like a sheep that has no shepherd. And the king said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And you could just think in his mind, man, I hate that guy. Why did we have to ask him? But yeah, he goes back to Jehoshaphat and says, I told you. He was going to tell us everything was bad. Um, Down in verse 23, this is again Micaiah speaking. Therefore, look, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and Yahweh has declared disaster against you. So, again, he's reinforcing that this is not going to go well for Ahab, even though all his prophets are saying it will. Verse 26, so the king of Israel said, here's here's how he handled the situation. Okay, take Micaiah, this guy I hate. (laughs) doesn't say that, but, you know, he said it earlier. This guy I hate. Return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison, feed him with the bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. So he's basically ignoring him. He's throwing him into prison. He's like, um, just serve him the basic stuff that he needs to stay alive, and then I'll come back and rub it in his face, right? And then, and then verse 28, Micaiah here says, if you ever return in peace, Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, take heed, all the people. So he's basically confirming that Yahweh was speaking through him, that he had a bad message for Ahab. Ahab's ignoring it, and he's throwing the guy in prison. So those familiar with the story know what happened next. I've chosen to summarize it with the heading that appears over the next section. Ahab dies in battle. And if you go on to read about this, it wasn't even the type of death that people write songs about. It was... Dishonorable. In fact, it was just by coincidence that he died. If you jump down to verse 34, now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor so that he said to the driver's chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. And then he just died later on of blood loss, right? So what's the lesson there for us? It's, it's not necessarily that if we don't get out of the echo chamber, we're going to die by a random arrow, but 
if Ahab had been willing to get out of this echo chamber, again, I think, I think he had the type of arrogance that would not allow him to do that. But if he had taken the advice of Jehoshaphat and the advice of this prophet, perhaps um, he could have lived a little bit longer. Um, though I suspect, leading up to this, it was just Ahab's time to go. I think Yahweh may have had a, had a plan here for Ahab to be taken out of the picture. So you may be asking, well, how do I prevent what happened to Ahab? How do I make sure that I'm not stuck in my own echo chamber? And to answer that, I'm going to look forward on the New Testament to what was happening in the apostolic assembly. Just like today, Paul had to understand and either prove or disprove various beliefs that were held by the people he was interacting with at the time. Remember that Paul was an expert at dealing with challenges. And I'm going to give you a a list of a few examples of these beliefs that he had to encounter. Mm. Just need to wet my whistle. So Paul, as an example, there's, there's several more, but let me just give you a brief example. Paul had to deal with Jews, for example, who believed that circumcision was required for salvation. He talks a lot about this in his letter to the Galatians. Um, They actually dealt with this in Acts. All the elders got together and made a decision on this. Paul also had to deal with um, the smooth-talking, quote, super apostles. Some translations actually say super apostles that had twisted the good news and were coming in and um, convincing others, you know, of stuff that was actually false. Paul also had to deal with believers who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's like, listen, if you don't believe in resurrection, then... How can you believe in Yahshua and his death and his resurrection? Um, some people were saying the resurrection had all, our resurrection had already happened, like it was a thing in the past. Again, they were just twisting, twisting the, uh, the good news. Uh, Paul had to deal with people who were practicing magic arts. He had to deal with um, Stoic philosophers. Um, he also dealt with the pagans on Mars Hill, in which, by the way, he was able to go up to Mars Hill um, you know, and they were worshiping all their, their various deities, but he was able to relate to them, and actually some people left Mars Hill and joined him and believed. But let's turn to Acts 17. By the way, before this, I think, is um, where he was actually at Mars Hill here in Acts 17, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, what I wanted to show you, uh, I want to talk about the Bereans. So the setup to this is that Paul is in Thessalonica, He's going to the synagogues on Sabbath. He's having conversations with the Jews. He's really putting himself out there. He's trying to get them to believe in Yahshua. Um, Some of the Jews did believe there in Thessalonica. Other Jews decided to start a riot and turn people against Paul and Silas. So, of course, they had to flee. They had to leave and go down to Berea, and they found a synagogue there. And so this is the narrative written by, um, most people believe that Acts was written by Luke. So we'll say this is the narrative written by Luke that makes a comparison to the Jews in Berea, and they compare them to these Jews in Thessalonica. And it says in verse 11, these were more fair-minded or noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So he's saying they went down to Berea. They had a much better experience there because people were willing to accept, um, accept a shift in their thinking, right? And they, they didn't just accept it, but they searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things that Paul is telling them were true. And to me, this is like the opposite of being in an echo chamber, being willing to hear new ideas and study them out. 
The, this is from the New King James Version. They use fair-minded here, but um, I think a lot of us are familiar with the term noble. We, we, say, we, we say noble Bereans. That's what I always grew up with, knowing that Bereans were noble. Um, and it, it literally means noble in nature, high in rank, well-born. Um, and Ellicott's commentary, um, he's, for English readers, they have a commentary in here that I think kind of helps make this point about not being in an echo chamber. Um, he's talking about this word noble or fair-minded. He says, here it stands for the generous, loyal temper that was ideally supposed to characterize those of noble origin. This was the quality which the apostle and the historian admired in the Bereans. It says, they were not the slaves of prejudice. Barnes also says, it was always proof of a noble, liberal, and ingenious deposition disposition to be willing to examine the truth of any doctrine presented. And so those just kind of expound, both those commentaries kind of expound into what really attracted Paul and what attracted the writer of Acts to the Bereans and why they were calling them fair-minded and noble. It's clear to me that the Bereans' willingness to study out new ideas was an indicator that they were not living in an echo chamber, at least regarding the faith. So now I, have to, I feel like I have to talk a little bit about the balance here because you might be getting nervous to question whether you're in an echo chamber. Does it put you outside your comfort zone to get other perspectives? Um, especially when it comes to your faith, there's a warning I have to give you before you just let the floodgates open <laughs> to opposing views. Um, you have to make sure that you're grounded and you have a method for study. So Paul wrote something to the Ephesians that indicates that early in our walk and our spiritual immaturity were more likely to be affected by false doctrine. So in Ephesians 4, uh, 14, it reads that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him. Um, what about this assembly? I don't know if anyone started looking around and saying, oh, I wonder if we're in an echo chamber here. Um, you know, it's clear to me that the body, us, the members, uh, should be in unity. We should be able to nurture our relationships here to draw strength on each other. If you feel weak or, you know, have a doctrinal question, you should be able to come here and talk to someone about it. Hopefully get the encouragement that you need, um, the understanding that you need. Uh, you can also reach out to the elders. Um, and, and we are walking in the same faith, and it's good to have discussions about that faith, um, even with people who have a similar doctrine. And I'm going to make the point now that this isn't an echo chamber. Um, you may disagree, um, but I, you know, I'm par- I take part of the, the weekly Bible studies that happen every Sabbath at 11.30 a.m., and I think we're just plugging this every week now, <laughs> 11.30 a.m. I hear questions presented, even some for me, that challenge my understanding of certain scriptures, I've even said a few things that were challenged by others in the Bible study, and I learn a lot from that. I feel like I grow from that. Um, it's just one way to prove what you believe and to prepare yourself for challenges from others as you witness. Even from behind the pulpit, we often hear sermons about opposing views, and then they present, the, the, the preachers will present evidence, and they'll say, prove this on your own. Uh, like the Bereans who search the scriptures, we're told to rightly divide the word of truth. And there's one, one caveat here. So 2 Timothy 2, we're told to, to rightly divide the word of truth with one caveat. 
Be diligent to present yourself approved to Yahweh, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But, but, shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase more wickedness or more unrighteousness. And I forgot to change it in the slide, but more unrighteousness or it will increase more wickedness. And their message will spread like cancer. So what are you supposed to avoid here? Um, profane and idle babbling is another way of saying that. The, the profane is just something that's unhallowed or common, and it's empty disputing, these idle babblings. That's kind of what the, the Greek is getting at, this empty disputing, where you're not really learning anything. You're just there to um, cause strife. You know? But you might ask, well, how can we shun certain things and make sure we don't become prey to confirmation bias? Well, I think you have to consider the source of the ideas. Are these ideas coming from a source of contention? Is it meant to cause strife? Paul makes it clear that there is value in having experience, and we're going to read about that in the next chapter, 2 Timothy 3. There's value in having experience in the scriptures. If you're ready to challenge a belief, it's a good idea to consider the source of your information. For example, is it from the scriptures? You know, that's... Something you might want to challenge, you know. Seek counsel if you need someone with experience. 2 Timothy 3, <clears throat> starting in verse 13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing from whom you have learned them. That's the key phrase for me, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in the Messiah, Yahshua. So Paul here, I think he's reminding them, hey, these things that you've learned and you've been assured of, it's come from me and I'm a reliable source, or it's come from one of the other disciples who's going around with me and establishing these assemblies. You know where you've learned these things, and so you should hold on to them. And beware of people who come in just trying to deceive you. And this concept can even be applied to your personal life. When you read a news line, or a, yeah, headline from the news, is it a trustworthy source? And we all have opinions about what trustworthy sources are, don't we? But again, is, that, is it a source that just um, keeps confirming, you know, keeps confirming what we believe? Is there a hidden agenda? A lot of times we can spot that. It's so easy to look at the headlines and not read the details. Since my wife is here, I wasn't going to say this, but sometimes she'll read something that she saw on Facebook, and, you know, they always throw the headlines out, and they're super exciting because I think they want that click, right? And um, sometimes I'll be like, now, does that seem right to you? <laughs> like, she's like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't open the article up to read it, and maybe I should, and we kind of have a chuckle about it. And I think when she presents those to me, it's more like, Hey, this is kind of crazy, isn't it? Look at, look at how this is just being shared all over the place, but we know there's, it's not completely true, right? Um, it's easy to pass something on without checking it out first. So when you consider a new doctrine, is it from someone you have interacted with in the past? If not, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means it's a little more risky, and you should approach it cautiously. So... My challenge for you is to look around over the next week, see if you can recognize any echo chambers that you are caught in. Are you being affected by confirmation bias? Is it stunting your spiritual growth? 
Is it stunting your personal growth? Um, here's a summary. Um, I, I, I thought, you know what, I should probably throw a summary slide in just for those who aren't taking notes. <laughs> the, the first point is the most important. What I want to encourage you is to have a willingness to look for truth and change when you are, you know, course correct when you are shown a new truth. So point number one, be willing to consider other evidence and change your belief on a subject. Point number two, don't just take new evidence at face value. You have to dig into it, especially if it's in the faith. We have to be like the noble Bereans, right, and search the scriptures, study it out. Um, and finally, number three, consider the source of the evidence. Is it trustworthy? Is there a hidden agenda? So I hope this message has given you something to think about and that you will consider these things over the next week. May Yahweh bless you. Thank you for your attention. Amen.